Welcome to the radio ministry of Cedar Grove United Methodist Church. May God fill you and transform you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now for some music and then Pastor Brian Bowley.
gospel reading this morning is from the gospel of Luke, the ninth chapter. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, his face changed. The appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him, and it's destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Folks, let's take a moment here before I get into the sermon to talk about Ukraine and the Russian invasion. You know, we often think of Russia as a communist country, Ukraine much the same. But things have changed since 1990. Russia now has a tremendous Christian population again. Ukraine, even more. In fact, not only are the Orthodox there, there is a tremendously growing population of evangelical Christians, Protestant Christians. The Methodist Church has quite a few congregations now, both in Russia and in the Ukraine. We're seeing this, I think, in some of the some of the events that we're hearing about, the protests against the war in Russia, we're seeing it in the way 
people are sacrificing themselves because they have hope to live eternally. Yes, we are to pray for the people of the Ukraine. But also, as, as we learned last week, we're to pray for our enemies also. We're to pray for the people of Russia and even the leaders of the two, of the two countries in the hopes that they will all come to know Jesus much better and their hearts will be changed. So let's take a moment here. Heavenly Father, we lift up to you today the people of Ukraine and Russia as well as the rest of the people of Europe and even here in America. We ask that you would use what is going on to your glory, that you would bring many millions of people to come to know your son. We ask that you would bring the leaders of the countries to know your son also, that they would be completely transformed by your Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that you bring the fighting to an end quickly and that you would lift the people up. Father, guide us also in what we should do to help out and help us to pray as you would have us to pray that all things will follow your will and that people would accept your will in their lives and not depend upon their own strength. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus, the Savior of all people. Amen. In the days of Moses, the people of Israel had escaped from the captivity in Egypt through God's miraculous intervention. They moved around for a while and then they settled at the foot of a mountain, traditionally Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, but recent discoveries have led many of the people who study these things to point to a mountain in western Saudi Arabia because they have found a lot of artifacts there which they did not find at Mount Sinai. But in any event, Moses went up on the mountain to speak to God. And God gave Moses the law on two tablets. The law expressed an agreement between God and the people of Israel. They would follow God's commands and God would protect them. And during this time on the mountain, God, Moses spoke with God directly. This much most people know. What is less well known is in our reading from Exodus today. When Moses came down from the mountain carrying the tablets, his face glowed. It was shining, it was radiant, and this frightened people. It says it was as bright as a lightning strike. Like the moon reflects the powerful light of the sun, Moses' face was glowing with the reflected glory of God's glory. Even Moses' brother Aaron was frightened of Moses because of this glowing radiant face. Moses' glowing face was proof that something special had happened to Moses on the mountain. It was proof that God was up there. And that, proof, and that proof of God reminded people that they weren't God. And that was what frightened the people of Israel. Moses' face was a glowing reminder that there was a God who was much more powerful than they were. 
Today, you know, most people say we believe in God, but it also freaks out most people when we see proof of God with our own eyes and ears. We don't like to remember that we aren't God. But Moses persuaded Aaron and the other leaders to listen to his message from God. And soon Moses spoke to all the people of Israel. And when Moses finished speaking to them, Moses put a veil over his face so people would not be frightened of him, probably at the advice of Aaron and the other leaders. But whenever he went back up to the mountain and he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came back down. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant once more. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord again. Over the centuries, we still like to keep the veil over those who remind us of God. When we walk into a church, we prefer to sit in the back rows of the sanctuary (laughs) because we sense that God is at the front, at the altar. We like to keep our distance from God. We prefer others pray. We prefer others read the scripture. Many even prefer to stay at home or in cars, separated from the presence of God by as much distance and as many walls and veils as we can, for deep down, we recognize that if we get closer to God, God might notice us and ask us to change, to transform, to do something for God. And that frightens us. Because we like to think that we're independent, we're self-sufficient, we're totally in control of our lives. Most of what we do in life, you know, is a move to take control of our lives. Are there any control freaks out there? (laughs) Coaches and teachers and movies tell us that to be famous, we must take control of our lives. And so we go and we get an education because we've been told that more knowledge means more money and a better understanding of the world around us. And we work harder because, you know, more money means we can control more things. In older days, back at the time of the the Israelites, people had more children because more children meant more hands to work the land and more food in our storehouses. Today... We invest in stocks, in more education, in land, and businesses. We might even go into politics so we control the laws of the land we live in. And some, like Hitler and Vladimir Putin, even invade other countries so they can control more of the world. Because deep down, we believe that a larger bubble of control is just what we need to be totally in control of our lives. If we can just become more wealthy more powerful, more knowledgeable, we'll be in total control of everything we need to be in control of. And we feel we must be in control. We even make sure we have good health insurance so we won't die. We must be in control. But we aren't. We are never in total control, are we? We're like people on a roller coaster. Who knows how to come back from death? Oh, we know how to get someone's heart beating again. Doctors study for years to gain this control and other control over life and death. But who knows how to come back from death after two nights and a day 
the amount of time Jesus was dead. Who knows even how to restart their own heart? Unless Jesus returns soon, we all must face the fact that we have no idea how to live again after our heart stops beating and we fall asleep for the last time. We can't do it ourselves. Our idea that we are in control is only a foolish illusion, for we all fail when death approaches. The fear that Moses' glowing veil, glowing face, gave the people of Israel was the fear of death. It was a reminder that they weren't in control because God exists. And so they chose the veil rather than to, to look at the man who had walked with and talked with God. In our Corinthians reading, Paul goes back to talk about the veil. He points out that the Jews preferred to keep a veil in place rather than look at Jesus. For the law of Moses allows them to pretend that they are in control. Follow the rules step by step and nothing bad will happen. We're in control if we follow the rules. But the veil covers their hearts and keeps them from seeing God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul told us. But even today, we have Christians who keep the veil of rules on. How are we saved? Simple. Here's the rules. Believe in the existence of Jesus and be immersed in water. Two simple steps. Or believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Two other steps. Or if you want to be safe and in control, do all three steps. Believe, confess, and be baptized. It's simple, right? One day, we aren't saved, and we're doomed to hell. And a few hours later, we are saved, and we're bound for heaven. And we never need to do anything again. You've heard once saved, always saved, right? We like things simple and easy and done with. You check off the boxes, and our car passes inspection today, and so it's good for the next year. Check off the boxes and our driver's license is renewed for the next five years. Turn 21 years old and we can drink for the rest of our lives. Flip the two or three switches of the salvation rules and we're good for eternity. But when we focus upon the rules, we fail to see beyond the veil to see the God who is there the one who declared the rules in the first place. You know, Jesus said, believe in me a handful of times. But he said, follow me over 80 times. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey down a path through the woods that sometimes is easy to follow and sometimes it's hard to follow. Just like all paths are. Belief and baptism and confession of belief, they're simply the keys to unlocking the gate and stepping onto the path. After those first steps, we now need the daily guidance of Scripture and the Holy Spirit and wisdom, wisdom from the Spirit, to stay on the path. From time to time, we, we leave the path to look at a nice patch of blueberries. And as long as we apologize and try to return to the path, God forgives us for leaving the path. But some people leave the path, and they never even desire to return again. These people are lost forever. God allows us to leave the path and never return, you see. God's very polite in that. 
But keep this in mind, if you're trying to return to the path, God will show you the path and welcome you back with open arms. In our gospel reading today, Jesus led three of his disciples on a hike up to the top of Mount Hermon, that mountain in the back of the the picture. It's the highest peak. It's located between northern Israel and Lebanon and Syria. It's today known as the Golan Heights. It was a long, hard climb up this particular path, and it was exhausting. And Jesus stopped at the top and began to pray. You see, a a little over a week before, Jesus had asked his disciples who the crowd said he was. And some had said John the Baptist, who had recently been killed. And others said Elijah, the great prophet. And others said that Jesus was another one of the prophets. He then pressed them for who the disciples said he was. And Peter replied, God's Messiah, which meant that Peter thought Jesus would be a great leader and prophet sent by God to restore Israel's greatness. In Matthew's version, Peter adds, the son of the living God, after stating that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus then predicted his death and told the disciples they must take up their cross daily and follow him. He did not say that this was a two or three quick step process. But it was an ongoing process. He said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And it was eight days later that Jesus, Peter, John, and James climbed the path up the mountain to pray. Now, as Jesus was praying at the top of the mountain, his face and his clothes began to glow brightly. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, and they talked with Jesus about his departure, which would soon come at Jerusalem. Peter and the others were very sleepy, but when they saw this happening, they woke up. Peter got very excited. He wanted to put up three small temples for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, not realizing that they were not equals. A cloud came and covered them. And a voice came from the cloud and said, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And when the cloud passed on, Jesus was alone with the disciples. And asked by Jesus not to say anything, they kept the encounter secret until after the resurrection. I want you to notice that Jesus' face glowed, but unlike Moses, who glowed with a reflected glory, Jesus glowed with his own glory. In the book of Revelation, it's written that New Jerusalem will not need a sun or a moon, for it will have the light of God and Christ. Revelation 21:23 says, The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Can you imagine this? What does it mean for us? What did it mean for Peter, James, and John who saw Jesus' glory in the flesh on the mountain? Maybe it's best to simply recount what happened the next day in the valley nearby, near the mountain. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met them and a man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son because he convulses and foams at the mouth. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And Jesus said, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with, with you? Bring your son here. 
The demon threw the son to the ground for a convulsion. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. You'll notice that Jesus only took his three closest disciples up onto the mountain to see him as he was. Yes, Jesus had favorites. He didn't treat each of his disciples equally because he knew that they were each different. Peter was brash, but Peter wanted desperately to follow and be with Jesus all the time. John was more intellectual. And kind of towards the back there, you had Thomas, who took his time in understanding Jesus and what Jesus was capable of, never understanding till a week after the resurrection. Peter, James, and John, you see, they were the only ones that Jesus felt could handle seeing Jesus' glory on the mountain. And so they were the only ones invited that day. The next day, back in the valley, the, the job of daily ministry went on. There was a crowd and a child who needed healing. The crowd didn't ask what happened up on the mountain. The crowd didn't worry about those things. Instead, the crowd was most amazed that Jesus could heal a boy who was demon-possessed. You see, most people are only concerned with what Jesus can do for them, not with who Jesus is. But we must always remember who Jesus is. For Jesus is not a series of salvation rules, but a person to be followed. Jesus is not about a series of rules to be followed, but is a person who loves us more than anyone else has ever loved us. Jesus does not operate by a rule book where you pass or fail. But while he loves all of us intensely, some people have a closer relationship with Jesus than other people, and Jesus wants a still closer relationship with each of us. If we want to see his glory on the mountain up close, we need to spend more and more time with him in the valley. For otherwise, if we keep our distance like the crowd in the valley did, we can begin to lose sight of the long-term consequences of just who Jesus is. We can begin to see him as a wise man who lived long ago, as a doctor who somehow fooled those stupid ancestors of ours, as a mere political leader. And we can begin to believe that the purpose of the church is just to be wise, just to heal, just to get together, just to march for social justice. And forget that we've been sent by the Son of God to completely change the people of the world to transform ourselves, to transform others, to be transfigured into something more than ordinary human beings. Without remembering the transfiguration of Jesus on the mountain, we can forget that there is more to life than climbing over the mountains and valleys of life. We can forget that there are important things about the world which we don't see in the valley of everyday life. We keep the veil in front of us when we stay in the valley. For example, we can forget that God is with us, Emmanuel. We can accept the amazing grace that God has given us as just everyday luck and chance, and worse yet, as our own doing. We can forget that beyond the veil, Jesus sits in heaven and will return. You know, Peter never ever forgot 
Many years later, in 2 Peter 1, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We, he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Peter never forgot who Jesus is and his glory. Pray that we never forget either. Cedar Grove United Methodist Church and Pastor Brian Boley would like to thank you for listening to last week's pre-recorded sermon. Join us live this Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and on Facebook. We are located on Route 47, a mile and a half east off I-77, just across from WVU Parkersburg campus. Donations may be mailed to Cedar Grove UMC, 168 Old Turnpike Road, Parkersburg, West Virginia, 26104. Or you can text the word GIVE to 1304-244-1903 or visit our website, cedargroveunitedmethodist.org and click on the GIVE tab. This will bring up a form where you can determine how much you would like to give. Thank you and God bless you in your life.